Hello, everyone, and welcome to Untangle, the meditation podcast from Gaiam. I'm your host, Patricia Karpus. In this series, we introduce you to real people with extraordinary stories and experts who have devoted their lives to teaching and helping others through meditation. In today's episode, I sat down with Susan Piver, an exceptionally skillful meditation teacher. She teaches workshops and speaks on mindfulness, communication styles, relationships, creativity, and so much more. She's been a student of Buddhism since 1995 and is the best-selling author of nine books on meditation, Buddhism, and a variety of other topics. She's here to tell us her story. Susan Piver, I'm so excited to have you here today. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here with you. Yeah, it's exciting. So I want to start with a question just to kind of roll back time. Um, Tell me a little bit about what you were like as a 10-year-old girl. (laughs) Just describe Susan at 10. Oh, my God. (laughs) That is a hilarious and awesome question. As a 10-year-old child, I was so shy. I was almost pathologically shy, I would say. I was extremely introverted. All I wanted to do was read and write. I would look at pictures in magazines and make up stories about them. I, This is so geeky, and I'm a complete nerd. I read the encyclopedia. Oh, <laughs> I read. I was like, well, I would like to learn some things. Let's get E off the shelf. How did you communicate with your friends, your family? Well, I had a best friend. I would have one person that I could feel comfortable with. I'm sure that there are you know, many people, people who are listening who are like that too. They're just shy and connect with one person more. I just kept to myself a lot. And I was a very bad at school. So, you know, that was troublesome. Because you didn't enjoy it? I mean, it seems like you were super curious and interested in reading and storytelling and writing and and then not so interested in school. It Was, was it too conventional? Was it too... I've thought about this a lot because I barely graduated high school and I did not go to college. And then many years later, when I did my own meditation instructor training, I failed. Everyone else passed. Were you doing things in your own way and not wanting to follow rules so much? Yeah, well, partly it was that. But what I learned not too long ago, maybe even sometime in the last six or eight years, in the right brain, left brain preference world, I don't have a clear preference I don't gravitate to one or the other, notably. And I'm extremely kinesthetic. That's what I learned that really unlocked this sort of neurosis for me. Is I can't learn by hearing things. I don't learn that way. This is so interesting because there's so many questions now about how we educate children and how everyone learns differently. And a lot of people say that their child learns visually or or auditorially. I haven't really heard that much, although I haven't studied it, but kinesthetically, what does that mean? Do you have to have the experience of something to have it be yes. your your uh, lesson? Yes, you have to do it. So that our school education system is not built for people that need to 
actually take whatever it is into their own hands or their body and then sort of mess with it mm. and learn by interacting with it. So, you know, now if I get something from Ikea, I open the box, I take the instructions, and I throw them away. <laughs> they are not helpful to me, but I try this angle and I see, oh, that looks like it fits in there. And eventually, you know, it takes me longer, but eventually I get it. How did you figure out that you were a kinesthetic learner? It was when I failed my meditation instructor training. I was so devastated. And, and everybody around me was graduating. And I drove away in tears, wondering, because, you know, this is my life. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I had just written a book about meditation. And I could not make it through the training, although I knew I knew how to do it. But what I couldn't do was the test. Right, right. Oh, how interesting. I knew I knew how to do it. No, and you are a New York Times bestselling author. I think you have seven books. You may have more. (laughs) Is it seven books? It's nine. Um, So nine books. You've written books. People love you, and they love your books. And so it's just so interesting that you were never comfortable with a more traditional or normative kind of training in life. Um, Our educational system failed you. And so I think there's probably a lot of people out there that can really relate to that. Oh, I'm sure. And it's good news, bad news. I mean, the bad news is you walk around for much of your early life feeling like you're not smart or something. Did it impact your confidence in life? I felt very alienated. I, I couldn't figure out. It was confusing. It sounds confusing. Tell me, how did you come to Buddhism and subsequently to a meditation practice? Well, when you are a kinesthetic learner, uh, you don't see a path. Whether it's right or wrong, you don't see it. So you have to just go by instinct all the time. So I, that's how I do everything, basically. I mean, I'm, I'm organized and I write things down and so forth, but I really rely on my intuition and instinct to guide me to things. So I happened to read a book one day, probably 25 years ago now. It was a book called The Heart of the Buddha by Chogyam Trungpa. And at that time, I didn't know that there was a difference between like Buddhist and Hindu. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting and reading that book and turning page after page feeling like a massive light had just been turned on. Like, this makes sense. Finally. The philosophy was that? Yeah. And there was one sort of pivotal moment where he said something like, the only possible spiritual path is your own experience. And that shook me in a good way. That, I was like, yeah, that makes total sense to me. It's what you are experiencing. That is your path. That is your practice. And all the things that you might study may be useful, but no one can give you the path. The path is who you are. And so I just remembered that moment. But then serendipity took over. You know, it was probably some five years later. Just by complete coincidence, I ended up meeting people that work at Shambhala Publications, which was in Boston up until very recently. And... I just became friends with some people who worked there. And one day I was at lunch with their head of sales. And I worked in the music business at that time. And I was the head of sales where I worked. So we were talk shop. 
uh, I said, I think I might like to learn to meditate. And it was like all the ambient noise in the room dropped away. And he said, what kind? I didn't know there were kinds. <laughs> so, But this is one of the only times in my life it was like somebody said, using my voice, Tibetan? <laughs> like that. And he said, I know someone who might want to teach you. And mm. he introduced me to that person. And this that person to this day is still my meditation instructor. Wow. So he, you started learning the Buddhist philosophy and meditation from this one teacher. And how did you decide you wanted to ultimately make this your career? Well, I never really made that decision. Okay. And I'm not trying to be disingenuous. Yeah, like, oh, yeah. just a flower child mm. wandering out there mm -hmm, and fun, mm -hmm. good things happen. I never intended to be a teacher or a writer. I was in the music business. And the music business was going away. But then it's like I slipped on the right banana peel because I was getting married. I'd never been married. I didn't know why anyone would get married. <laughs> why would you do that to someone you like? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> if I went to the bookstore, I'm like going to go read about it. Right. There's right. nothing to read. About getting married. There are books about dresses. There were books about the psychology of marriage. But there was nothing like, what is the meaning of this? So I wrote down some questions to ask. I had this epiphany that marriage doesn't succeed or fail on whether you love each other. It's can you create a life together that you love? So I just thought about what do I know about our life? Does he, are we going to put our money in the same bank account? And where are we going to live? Because at the time we lived in two different places. And by again, by happenstance, and I really mean that, it became a New York Times bestselling book. Because a friend of mine said, oh, that would make a good book. Well, somehow it became a book, and then it was successful. And then I could write more books if I wanted. Because the first one was a big success. Yeah. The um, idea of being a wife and being so curious about what does that mean and, and should I become one inspired you to write this book, The Hard Questions, mm -hmm. 100 Essential a hundred essential questions to ask before you say, I do. At the same time, you're learning to be a Buddhist, effectively. You're getting married, and you're becoming a best-selling author, which is a crazy. crazy grouping of things to all happen at the same time, and so wonderful, right? And so once you become a best-selling author, that gives you the sort of platform to be able to write more books. So here you are, this introverted, shy 10-year-old girl who then becomes this person that's telling stories and sharing with the rest of the world, which is kind of cool. It's a good job for an introvert, though, because writing and teaching, mm. you can preserve your connection to yourself. But the, the turning point for me was really when the book became a New York Times bestselling book, and I was on the Oprah show, and then I was on the Today Show being interviewed by Katie Couric. And then I was on CNN. And then I was getting huge money offers. Oh, my God. It was <laughs> and, 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 and I was like getting called. Uh, the turning point was I got a phone call from Us Magazine wanting to know if I could comment as a relationships expert on uh, Britney Spears' antics after her relationship ended, or Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman when their marriage ended. Could I comment on that? And I'm a serious practitioner, you know, relatively. 
And I, I thought, well, could I do? Should I do that? Should I? Yeah, I'll, yeah. Can I say something useful? Let's see. So I, I think I probably did it. But there was a moment there where I thought, oh, I could really actually become confused and start to believe that I am a relationships expert, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I am not. Well, you're getting swept into something that didn't feel right to you. And actually, when you wrote that book, it was because you had more questions than you had answers. I did start to go on lengthy retreats at that point. I went on several months retreat. I started studying the Dharma much more intently and really doing everything I could to move Dharma into the center of my life as opposed to Good Morning America. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And... You know, writing a book of questions is great because you don't write a book of answers. You And then my first book that I wrote really about Buddhism was probably six years later, which was How Not to Be Afraid of Your Own Life. Mm. I wrote it as a student. So that is a very good and comfortable place for me or has been up until recently. I'm not any different than anybody else, which remains tr- the case, obviously. But let me talk to you from my experience studying these things? What is it like to try to bring these things into your life as a regular person? I felt good about that voice. Well, it feels very true to you. And what I love about what you teach is that it's so authentic and jargon-free. So I think so many people can relate to it. But also, you are a person that's out in the world. You're teaching. You have these fantastic books, but you also have a very deep practice. I'd love for you to talk about this a little bit because the titles of your books are brilliant. You were talking about how not to be afraid of your own life, the wisdom of a broken heart, freedom from fear. You know, these books, these titles capture so much of our vulnerability and in in today's culture. And so I'd love for you to talk about like what does it mean how not to be afraid of your own life, for example. Yeah. My father, by the way, when I told him about the book, thought I said how not to be afraid of your own wife. <laughs> He was very excited about oh, that's hilarious. when I told him what it really is called. He's ah, never mind. <laughs> um, well, I wrote the proposal for that book, and I didn't know what it was going to be called. But in the in the proposal, I wrote, "Meditation helps you to not be afraid of your own life," because that is one of the sort of results of the practice: is you stop being afraid of yourself which at that point changes everything. The publisher, they glommed onto that sentence. They said, that's, that's the title. That's what we're calling it. I said, are you sure? Maybe it's a good subtitle. But they're, nope, that's what we're calling it. And then the wisdom of a broken heart, in the Shambhala Buddhist tradition particularly, there are a lot of teachings on heartbreak. Not as a sort of sad, lumpy, pathetic thing, but as a state of sort of primordial openness. And so I just thought we got our hearts broken by many things, but heartbreak from lost love is a thing. What if we could apply these teachings on heartbreak to this state that you're in when you lose someone you love and you, are, you have no idea what to do? You are in a complete free fall 
and you don't see how anything could ever be better, you are absolutely incapable of functioning normally. I mean, maybe you can go to work for a little while, but you're, you're sort of destroyed on the inside. And in Buddhist thought, this is a good opportunity. You actually are in the state of heartbreak that is synonymous with bodhisattva activity or, you know, kind activity of service meant to be a benefit. You have this possibility of tapping into the wellspring of love. Is that about empathy for someone that wants to really understand what that means and what the gift of heartbreak is? Because, I mean, we also know that so many people do come to meditation after a breakup. Talk a little bit more about, like, the gift of that heartbreak. Yeah, it really doesn't feel like a gift. It doesn't, no. No. (laughs) A lot of people will. Let's just put that right out there. (laughs) I'm not saying that it feels good. Right, right. It's horrible. Mm -hmm. It's stunning. It's shocking how, how devastating it is. Because when your heart is broken, if you sit in an airport, sort of the classic example everybody sees, you see people greeting, you see people parting, and it's easy to just feel the sort of tenderness of human society in such a setting. But if you're heartbroken and you go into an airport, for example, when you see happy people, you feel the happiness in your own bloodstream. And when you see unhappy people, you feel the unhappiness in your own bloodstream. It's not quite empathy. Empathy has like one step remove. Mm. But this is you feel the presence and the content of other people's hearts in your own heart. And I think that that's what is meant by compassion. I sort of wondered, is compassion a slight degree turn heartbreak? Are they the same thing? Mm. You just swivel in your seat a little bit. Could you look at heartbreak as compassion? I think you can. So then you have this something to work with. And P.S., you don't have a choice. Right. Because you're shredded. Right. And you feel everything, every song, every everything. So, okay, you're in, you're in. You're in the bodhisattva world, one could say. So look around. Yeah. What is the bodhisattva world for people that haven't heard that expression? Bodhisattva. Sattva means an awakened being mm-hmm. who – an awakened being means in this particular sense of in order to be a benefit to others. So it doesn't mean saps acting like wusses. <laughs> it just means people who are awake to the reality of suffering and humanity and have committed themselves to bring kindness into the world, which doesn't mean nice. Right. It means sharp and accurate and piercing and appropriate. So as a human race, we share a collective grief around terrorism or, you know, some of these horrendous activities that happen in our world. And so many people don't know how to process it and they become angry and they become just – it's such a huge – I mean frustration is just an understatement. So how does a bodhisattva take something like that that is in the collective consciousness of our our world right now and be with that? Mm -hmm. It's a very good question and 
I don't know is the real answer. I don't know. However, what I've learned is if you turn away from the pain that you feel in connection with these horrific tragedies, then you become despairing. But if you turn toward the pain, it on its own converts to a kind of compassion. So in other words, if you feel your feelings, sadness unfelt becomes despair. Sadness felt becomes compassion. And compassion doesn't mean forgiving anyone, approving of anyone. You can be enraged. You can wish that people who are chopping off other people's heads and shooting other people would be decimated and removed from the planet. I think that's entirely appropriate. You can be full of rage. No problem. The only thing you can't do is think that you are any different than them. That's where the trouble comes in. Mm -hmm. And of course, you and I, we're not going to go out here and shoot people. So we're different in that sense. But if we were raised where they were and saw what they saw, would we not do what they did? I don't know. Right. We might. That's the question. I, we might. So let me move to your most recent book, which is called Start Here Now, An Open-Hearted Guide to the Path and Practice of Meditation. And so I want to get a little bit more into how does someone start a practice of meditation? Why should they meditate? Um, so maybe you can talk to us a little bit about that. Sure. Let's just summarize it by saying meditation has been scientifically proven to be awesome. So that's awesome. And it's good to try it, but it's also good to sort of manage expectations. It's not a life hack. It's not a quicker route to being more successful or happier. I mean, it could make you more successful, will make you happier, but that's not its point. I think it's important to learn meditation from someone who has been trained to teach it. I think um, in your book you said there are two reasons people come to meditation. One is deeper meaning of life, to raise your level of consciousness, and the second is to make life more bearable, get a good night's sleep, worry less, not freak out as much. You know, those are the two sort of main reasons people come to it. In terms of the impact on like stress and depression and you know your overall happiness, would you say that if you have a daily practice of almost any kind that you would have some positive impact in those areas? Think about that. No, I would not say that. I would say if it's the practice that's right for you and you sort of know it at a certain point because you feel a path open up before you, you notice that you're changing. You start to see things differently. You feel things you hadn't felt before. It's subtle, sometimes very subtle. But a path starts to open up and you find that you're on it, then you're doing uh, the right practice. But it's not any practice. It's not, right. it's some, I think people are, are say, well, all practices are really the same or all roads are the same. They lead, uh, no, I and don't think that's true. You have to find the one that's right for that's you. That's right. Um, I love what, and I'm not sure if this is a, your quote or a quote from one of your teachers, but 
um, in an untrained mind, we go along with the ride that is our mind. And I feel like that's such a big idea for meditation because so many of us are led astray by our stories and the mental chatter that constantly goes on. And I feel like even personally, that's one of the biggest benefits of meditation is that you can hear that story. And if you if you train your mind to pay attention to it, you don't have to react to that story. So can you just talk a little bit about that? And meditation really helps you reestablish agency, I would say. So you're not carried away by your thoughts or moods, or you see that you're being carried away because mm-hmm. sometimes you can't help it. But at least you see it. And there's a sense of, you know, command might be too strong of a word, but agency returns agency to your inner world. So that's really important, especially in our world where everything is moving so fast. Mm -hmm. There's countless inputs every single day. So easy to get swept up in anything. Yes. To be able to direct your attention where you would like it to go and then hold it there. As opposed to feeling everybody in my whole world says, I have ADD. I can't do that. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. Right. Probably you don't. The world has ADD. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you are feeling that. So to be able to say, I think I'm going to stop. I think I'm going to simplify. I think I'm going to choose what I'd like to pay attention to. And then have confidence that when I do place my attention there, I can hold it there. It's a big deal. It's a big deal, and that's exactly why I ask a lot of people, um, does meditation take away your edge? Because I know that so many people have said to, you know, have asked this question, will will I become lazy or will I be sleepy or will I be? And the answer always comes back, that you'll be sharper and more focused. And I think you just really explained why that happens, because you're more focused on your behavior and your choices. Yeah. I agree with all those people who said it makes you sharper. Yeah. I want to ask you another question. You have brought online meditation to thousands and thousands of people. Can you talk a little bit about that and how is that going? And I'd love to hear about that. Yes, I'm delighted. It's it's amazing. This is the center of focus of my life, actually. I started an online meditation community a few years ago. It's called the Open Heart Project. And once a week, I send out a meditation instructional video. It's a 10-minute practice, and it's preceded by a very short talk. And I wanted to be able to offer meditation instruction live. I mean, it's not live. I recorded it, and I send it out. But it's different every time. And I wanted to be able to support people to meditate because everyone finds it difficult to establish the habit. So... It's become a great joy. And there are now close to 15,000 people all over the world who meditate together in the Open Heart Project. And now there's the Daily Dharma Gathering, which is every day a different teacher gives meditation instruction. So it's not just me. You can sample all kinds of great teachers. Right, right. So do you have any sort of inspirational quotes that you'd like to share with us? So this is the best. It's from Chogyam Trungpa. And it, going back to what we are talking about, about the basic groundless nature of being a person and how you can't ever really solidify and stabilize your life, 
which is quite shocking. Um, this quote always helps me not freak out about that. And it is a good news, bad news quote. The bad news is you're falling through the air, nothing to hold on to, no parachute. The good news is there's no ground. So you, that's the end of the quote, but I will just add to it so you can relax. I love that. Right? Yes, that is great. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom today. I, it's such an honor to be able to interview you. Oh, it's lovely to talk to you, and I appreciate your questions and, and just being with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for listening, and we look forward to sharing more inspiring stories on our next episode. If you'd like to know more about Susan, check out susanpiver.com and check out her compassion collection in Meditation Studio by Gaim on the App Store. If you have feedback or suggestions for stories, email us at untangle at See you next time.